The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We have been studying the Gospel of Luke, and we are now in chapter 10 in this 24-chapter Gospel on the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Chapter 10 is about midway through. We're going to be looking at verses 30 and following in Luke chapter 10, if you want to follow along, verses 30 to 37. If your Bible is like my English Bible, just above verse 30, it says, The Good Samaritan. And you might have those kind of titles and divisions in your English Bible. Those weren't in Luke's original divisions. He wrote on a probably a long old piece of papyrus reed that was patched together that in light of how long Luke was, probably a good 30, 40 feet scroll. And either roll it up with one big scroll or maybe a couple different scrolls. Can't even fathom how they did that, but that's how he did it. So he didn't have these artificial divisions that we have in our Bible, but they help us. But So we'll be looking at the Good Samaritan, and we, we call this the Good Samaritan story or the Good Samaritan parable. Parable is just a story. And that'll go to verse 37. But before we look at the details of the Good Samaritan parable or story, uh, many of you no doubt are familiar with the Good Samaritan parable that's actually in the Bible. And maybe some of you, it's been a while you've read the parable, forgot maybe some of the details. One thing that often gets overlooked, I can say this, uh, among Christians or the church and around the world, is the real meaning of the parable of the Good Samaritan. That is often quite confused and just completely overlooked on a routine basis. Uh, Some say that the story or the parable of the Good Samaritan, of all of Jesus' 30-plus parables in the four Gospels, that the Good Samaritan parable is the most well-known, not within the church, but around the world, even in secular society. It's not uncommon. Maybe you're watching just the nightly news or on a newspaper, and you see a headline about a Good Samaritan saves child from drowning. And then you read the story, and it has nothing to do with the Bible or religion or being spiritual, but this two-year-old was revived and given mouth-to-mouth and is alive by a complete and total stranger. And the headline says, a good Samaritan did a good deed. So that's become, that phrase, a good Samaritan, has become a common idiom in our English language and around the world. And we know at first blush what it means without explanation, that someone did a pretty out-of-the-ordinary significant good deed to somebody else. That's what being a good Samaritan means generally. And many people don't even know that comes out of the Bible and that it comes from the teaching of Jesus and that it actually has a very specific historical meaning in its context. So that's, that's what we're looking at here. What is the meaning of the good Samaritan story in its context? Because it's also not uncommon for Christians to take their finger and put it up in the air and open your Bible and, oh, there's the Good Samaritan story. I'm just going to read this. What's this about? And then you just read the Good Samaritan story and you try to interpret its meaning and come up with some practical application. And maybe you've never even read the book of Luke before and you don't really care what comes after the parable of the Good Samaritan. You just want to focus on that. And that's actually not a legitimate way to study the Bible, is to take something out of its context without any concern about what came before and what comes after, because its meaning is built on what came before and developed by what comes after. That's the only way to study the Bible. You can't do that, but we do it all the time, or people do it all the time. That's why you get uh, kind of fuzzy thinking or messed up or confused about what your Bible says, because we're not reading it in context. So... But, uh, the Gospel of Luke really was a letter, and it was written by Luke to a, a specific person. It was a long letter, and there's a sequence. And when you get a letter from your friend or somebody, you start at the beginning. Dear so-and-so, dear you. And if it's three pages, you don't just skip everything. Ah, I don't care what he says. I'm going to go to the middle paragraph. That looks juicy. I'll go there. Or I'll just go to the end. No, we don't do that. You have to read the whole thing because it has to be read in context. It builds on itself. Or you don't read a novel, at least you shouldn't. And just, you know, I'm going to start at page 
137, just for kicks. We, we don't do that. You can't do that with the Bible either, especially a book of the Bible or a letter. So this was written to Theophilus, and Theophilus, Luke's intention was Theophilus, start at the beginning and read the whole thing in order till you get to the end. So you're reading it in context, not cold turkey out of context. So that is the way I believe Luke intended this to be understood, and hopefully that's the way that Theophilus read it and interpreted it and came up with hopefully the right meaning. And that's how we're going to study it today. We're studying the Good Samaritan in context because, like I said, there's a lot of confusion. If you just dig a little bit, it's surprising. It's actually amazing how common... Uh, the Good Samaritan as a theme is for all kinds of institutions, organizations, ideologies, and causes of humanity. Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's everywhere. Uh, there's good ones that take the title of their ministry like um, Samaritan's Purse, Franklin Graham's ministry. That's, that's a good ministry. Samaritan's Purse, based on this parable. Uh, there's Samaritan Ministries, which is also a, an, a Christian organization uh, focused on helping people. That's also a good one. And then there are ones that aren't legitimate that take the name Good Samaritan for their unbiblical causes. Some of the common ones are, uh, or I should just say this story is not about the following themes that are routinely uh, waving the banner of, we believe in the Good Samaritan and Jesus based on the Good Samaritan story, and here are their causes that are completely un- illegitimate. Uh, So just to be clear, the Good Samaritan parable or story this morning is not about why the government should provide welfare or health care. But that's how it's being used, illegitimately. Uh, The Good Samaritan story, as Jesus told it, is not about promoting socialism, as some would have us believe. Uh, It's not about social justice at all. It's not about the social gospel is a little different. Probably the most popular one that it's not about is people read it and think, oh, the point of this is be good, do good. It is not about be good, do good. Uh, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is not about the redistribution of wealth. Uh, that would be code for Marxism and socialism, among other things. Uh, This parable is not about eradicating poverty, which some Christian organizations, that's their stated goal on their website. Can't be done. Jesus said it couldn't be done in this life, in this fallen world. And the Good Samaritan is not about uh, liberation theology. For those of you who know what that is, that's alive and well today. Or any of these uh, superficial man-made human agendas and external realities. External. Those are all putting... Emphasis on the here and now, the temporary, the transitory, that which will not last, the external. And ironically, the the truth of this story is the exact opposite. So let's look at it in context. So in context, uh, verses 30 to 37 are attached to what came before, verses 27 to 29, which are attached to the verses that came before, verses 21 and following, which is attached to all that came before, beginning in chapter 10, verse 1. So you've got to read... Uh, the Good Samaritan story in the context of all of Luke chapter 10. And all of Luke chapter 10 is not found in the other, four, uh, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. So this is unique. New information that Luke got somehow from somebody about the ministry of Jesus in the around 60 A.D., 30 years almost, that Jesus has been gone and Luke's going around getting interviews and talking to people and eyewitnesses. And uh, somebody told him about that this happened, that Jesus told this story and he had this confrontation with this Jewish leader, the scribe, and Luke's like, wow, okay, man, I, I read Matthew and Mark, and it didn't say anything about it. This is good stuff. This is new information. I'm putting that in my, my gospel. And he did. So thank you, Luke. This is new information. We wouldn't have this wonderful, blessed, world-famous parable and story of the Good Samaritan if it weren't for God using Luke to pen this for us. Uh, I'm going to call it a parable. Jesus, I said that beginning when Jesus finished teaching for two years in Galilee to all the towns and villages, and then he set his face on Jerusalem, and now he's got the slow trod in the last months of his life to Jerusalem, and that will be noted by, accentuated by parables, parables, with the emphasis of the 
truth of the parable being communicated to his disciples, apostles, and followers. And in those parables also, he intended to hide the simple truth from the intelligent and the wise and the hard-hearted and the self-sufficient. And that's what this parable does. This is very deliberate. He's telling a parable for a very specific purpose. And that's why you read it in context. Well, what is he doing? Well, let me take you back in the context here. Uh, Before this story, we saw that he sent out the 70. They went and preached. They came back. They're celebrating. Yeah, we could cast out demons. He said, don't be celebrating casting out demons. Rather, celebrate that your names are written in the book of life. Verse 20. Verse 20. Your names are recorded in heaven. You're saved. You know God. You're in the family of God. You're secure and in the palm of his hand. You have, you're born again. You have... Uh, you're a child of God. You have eternal life. That's what verse 20 means. Your names are recorded in heaven means you have eternal life. Guaranteed. Begins now, lasts forever. And we said that it could be that he was doing this out in public so people overheard possibly some of this conversation. And then Jesus praised the Father. Thank you, Father. That you have hidden these things, what? These realities and these truths about how to receive eternal life. God, thank you that you have hidden that from the intelligent and the wise. What does that mean? The spiritually arrogant. Thank you you've hidden that from people who aren't humble. Thank you you've hidden that from self-sufficient people. Thank you you've hidden that from people who say, I don't need God and I don't need a Savior. Thank you you've hidden that from people who don't need Jesus. Thank you, Father, for hiding that from those who have rejected me. And after two years now, there have been a growing group of people who are rejecting Jesus, overtly so, calling him names. He's seen that already. It's going to get worse as he heads to Jerusalem. God, thank you for hiding This truth, the most basic fundamental spiritual truth that we are interested, how you can receive eternal life. God, thank you for sovereignly hiding that from some because of their sinfulness and lack of belief so that they might not be saved. And then he goes on, and thank you also for revealing that truth about eternal life, how to be saved, how to know God. Thank you for revealing that to infants. Infants from the arrogant human point of view. Infants, people who were... Uh, the normal class of people. They're not in the religious leadership of Israel. They're just normal people, like most of you and me, the lowly people, the, some uneducated people, the undeserving people, the really sinful people. The Pharisees, they had sophisticated sins. Everybody else had horrible, wicked, unspeakable, unforgivable sins. Those are the infants. And Jesus is saying, God, Thank you, Father, for revealing how to be saved to these low-life people who just have simple belief and faith in you. Like 11 of the 12 apostles and like these 70 disciples who gave their life to Christ. And they were the minority. God, thank you for the minority. Thank you for the faithful few that you've entrusted to me. So he's indicting people who are religiously self-sufficient, arrogant, prideful, look down their nose at other people, and that basically defines and describes the Jewish leadership that Jesus was always butting up against, and we know them as the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the lawyers, men like this, the priests, the priestly caste, they're all up in the usher echelon. They're, They're in with God. Everybody else is vulnerable. Not guaranteed. As a matter of fact, the, the religious leadership in that day was so compromised that ran Israel uh, from uh, the Sadducees, Pharisees. And we've talked about this. They just had a stranglehold, a smothering stranglehold on the religious life of the people of Israel, on the masses, by this very small elite few. And they were complete and total hypocrites. Jesus told, uh, called them that. And they've been hounding Jesus for two years. And we saw the very beginning gospel of Luke when he began his ministry. Immediately he, he starts preaching and they question him in Luke chapter 5. And Jesus said, basically, I forgive your sins. And they, they're like, who does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive. And they, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy as he's out of the gate. Blasphemer. And in the same chapter, in the next chapter, it says, the scribes and Pharisees are grumbling among themselves about Jesus. And then further down in the chapter, 
It says that they were seeking how they might accuse him. Early on in his ministry, John says how they might arrest him. One of the Gospels says how they might kill him. Early on, this was their agenda. This is the Jewish leadership. This includes the scribes and the Pharisees. We talked about that last week. It's the Pharisees and the scribes, the scribes and the Pharisees. Some scribes were Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees were scribes. So but they had specific duties. Uh, and then there was the class of scribes, and within the class of scribes, there were different ones with different duties. There were the lawyers among the scribes, there were the teachers of the law among the scribes, and other duties. So that was the big class. So uh, we saw last week, as Jesus uh, blesses his disciples, uh, thank, thank you, Father, for recording their names in heaven and revealing these saving truths to them and hardening and blinding others like the intelligent and the wise, like the Jewish leadership here in this country who's been hounding me for two plus years, who think they know the Bible, but they don't. Those who have rejected your Messiah, that is me, your anointed one. God, thank you for hiding the truth from them. They don't know what eternal life is. And so the lawyer, one of these scribes, uh, overhears this truth that Jesus has been saying, and he can't keep his mouth shut, as we see here, because we read last week how uh, it says in verse 25 uh, that Jesus, and a lawyer stood up, a scribe, a lawyer, stood up in the midst of where Jesus was teaching and spoke out. And he put Jesus to the test. He, he asked a question. It's not a legitimate question. He asked a question. It's not a sincere question. It's a trap, a test. This word test uh, used only four times in the New Testament. And virtually every time it is in reference to Satan testing Jesus. Same word. That's the only, so it's totally illegitimate. This is a threat. This is satanically inspired. Not all questions are legitimate. So this lawyer stood up, and he was, he was a scholar. He probably had the Mosaic law memorized. We know that from his answer that is spontaneous, that is spot on. Uh, when Jesus asked him. So he's trying to put Jesus to the test. He's trying to discredit Jesus, make Jesus look like a fool. He calls him teacher, not rabbi, just, you know, teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So what, shall, so what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus, basically, you just said that you thank the Father that he hides realities about eternal life from wise and intelligent people, and I get your drift. I'm one of the wise and intelligent. So this guy obviously is insulted, so he's got to shut Jesus down. So speaking of eternal life, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus said to him, uh, what is written in the law? What is it saying in the law about eternal life? Uh, how do you read it? You're a scholar. And he quoted it just like that, and he quoted it spot on from Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love God with your whole being. And then from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. And that is the summary of the entire law. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Beautiful. You got it. You've, you've quoted it correctly. You've isolated the main priorities, and then Jesus adds this. You quoted from Leviticus 18, uh, but let me quote Leviticus 8. I mean, you quoted from Leviticus 19. Let me quote from Leviticus 18. Do this and you will live. And we talked about the Hebrew text, present tense, last week. Keep on doing this. Keep on doing this as a pattern of life. Keep on doing this regularly and don't stop. Keep on doing this to the point of perfection. Keep doing Live the Mosaic Law, all 613 laws, perfectly all the time, and indeed you shall have eternal life. That was an indictment because no one could do that. Because the Mosaic Law was given for one thing, one reason. Why did God give the Mosaic Law to his people? And by the Mosaic Law, I mean the Ten Commandments and the other... 603 laws that went with it. Paul makes it clear in the New Testament. God gave the Mosaic law to condemn. Write that down somewhere where you'll never forget it. Because that will just make everything else much easier when you're trying to interpret and sort out the continuity and discontinuity of do Christians apply the Mosaic law today? Do the Christians obey the Ten Commandments today? Why was the law of Moses given? Real simple. The Apostle Paul said it. The law was given to condemn. Meaning what? To condemn sinners. Well, who's that? All of us. Again, the law, it was a mirror. What was it a mirror of? You look into it. What is, a, what is the law of Moses? It was a revelation of the character and the attributes of a perfect, perfect infinite, holy God. That's what the, the law reflects the lawgiver. He is perfect. We are not. 
We look at his law, we look in the mirror of God, and we should be shocked, we should be overwhelmed, we should be shamed and embarrassed, humbled, brought to our knees. Yuck! God is holy, I'm anything but. I stand condemned by you, God the creator. and God, save me! That's why Paul said, when the law is doing its job, it condemns a sinner, exposes your sin, and then it drives you to Christ. It's a tutor. It it does one thing. What does the law do? The Mosaic law. It it condemns sinners. It condemns us. It exposes us. So this thinking that you can do anything in the Mosaic law to be saved goes against the original purpose, the simple original purpose that God gave the law for. He didn't give the law so that the Israelites could be saved or that Moses could be saved. It was to drive them to the Messiah, to show you your sin. It can't save. The law has no power. It has power to do one thing, to condemn you of your sin and say, you are guilty. That's what law does from God. Then we got to run and find a Savior then. So this law, that's the irony of this whole thing. He was a lawyer. What does that mean? He was a professional. Gave his life to mastering the Mosaic law. He had it memorized, pretty obvious, based on his spontaneous answer. He should have known the purpose. It's real simple. God stated it. The law was given to condemn, not to save. So he gets exposed by Jesus. Just keep doing this all the time and you'll be saved. And the guy doesn't say, oh, no, wait, whoa, 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 Jesus. I know you're Jewish and a teacher, but that's not why God gave the law. You know as well as I do that if I do the law as good as I could, I can't be saved. You know, he didn't say that. The lawyer didn't. Because the lawyer didn't understand uh, the original purpose of the law. He actually believed that you could attain salvation, righteousness with God, merit with God, by doing the law to the best of his ability. And he was so arrogant, he thought he did the law better than anybody else. That's what the scribes believed in the Pharisees. That's why Jesus later exposes them as complete and total hypocrites who mislead the people down the path of hell, literally. They, they shut off the kingdom of God from men because they're telling people, you can be saved by the law, but, but we're better at keeping the law than you are. Good luck. You need us. So that's what's going on here with this lawyer. Uh, do this and you will live by wishing, and, but, uh, see, and then verse 29, but wishing to justify himself, the lawyer, he, he's trapped. He got caught. He's been exposed. He's a, cripocate, a hypocrite. He fell short of the law. He knows it. He can't meet this impossible standard of loving God with your whole being all the time, 24-7. He knew he couldn't do that. And then the second one, love your neighbor as yourself. That means love your neighbor perfectly. Because how do we love ourselves? We love ourselves perfectly. Let's be clear here. When Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, or when this lawyer said that, he's quoting Leviticus 19, and it's repeated in the New Testament several times. And when it was originally given, when God said, love your neighbor as yourself, God was assuming that we all understand here that we love ourselves naturally, right? We love ourselves naturally. We love ourselves perfectly. Paul reiterated that in Ephesians. No man hates himself. No man hates his own flesh. What does that mean? We love ourselves with a perfect self-love. That is the standard. And God's point is, you know what? You don't love anybody as much as you love yourself. So it's an impossible standard to love God perfectly, to love humans perfectly. Therefore, you stand condemned by the law. It shows you you can't love to the expectations of God, and therefore, you're condemned. You need a Savior. You're headed for hell. That's the point. This lawyer knows that. He gets that. He understands Jesus' argument. It's like, whoa, okay, I don't meet the standards, so whoa. And especially for this guy, this lawyer, which of these two commandments, love God completely and love your neighbor perfectly, as Leviticus 19 says, he probably thought, well, I, lo- I got the loving God thing down pretty good. That's why he doesn't bring it up. Yeah, I love God. You know that from the, the religious guy praying in the temple and later on in Luke. Dear God, thank you for me. He goes on. That was the attitude of the Pharisees and the scribes. So they, get, they had the loving God thing down. The thing they didn't have down was loving their neighbor. Because when you read uh, Leviticus 19, from chapter, chapter 19, 13 and following, just Jesus, uh, God makes it clear of who your neighbor is. Your neighbor is anybody you come across at any given moment, no matter the condition that he is in. He could be poor. He could be blind. He could be a stranger. He could be your com- countryman. He could be a slave. He could be a free man. Chapter 
19, I think it's verse 16 in the Hebrew text, two verses away from love your neighbor as yourself. It's talking about how you love one of your neighbors, a stranger that you come upon and don't step over his blood. That's literally what it says. In the same chapter as the verse as love your neighbor as yourself. You come across someone, don't step over his blood. What does that mean? That means when you come across spontaneously somebody who's laying on the ground and all bloodied up, don't just pass them by. They are a living being made in God's image, and you need to tend to them immediately. That's the verse. That's what it says. You know what? The lawyer knew that. He had it memorized. And yet the, it became so compromised, the lawyers and the scribes and Pharisees and the Jewish law, they started adding to the Mosaic law, and they're redefining and splitting hairs. Okay, we've got to do something about love your neighbor because it, it appears that neighbor is anybody that you come across at any given time. Boy, we've got to get rid of that meaning because that means we'd have to love everybody. We'd have to love Gentiles. Can you imagine? We'd have to love Moabites. We'd have to love all these foreigners and strangers. We'd have to love people who aren't in the religious establishment like us. We'd have to love the normal people that live in Israel. We'd have to love normal Jews, normal pilgrims from other countries who are Jews, pilgrims that come from afar and give money to the temple so that I can keep my job at the temple. We have to love those people. I ain't going to do that. Let's, let's, let's figure this out. And they did. And they came up with all these hair-splitting laws so that the, uh, the group of people you had to love who was your neighbor became very, very small. And my neighbor is only who's in my demographic as a priest. That's the Jewish leadership that I am obligated to love. And as a Jew, the last person that I will love are our centuries-long sworn enemies, the Samaritans who live on the border, who we've been at war with for centuries. And we hate the Samaritans so much that when we go from Jerusalem to Galilee going north, we don't go through Samaria because the land is polluted. We take a right and we go across the Jordan River and up the east and the Decapolis and then we go back into town because we are not going to dirty ourselves on Samaritan soil. So the most hated people by the Jews of that day are the Samaritans. God forbid that we would ever even be near a Samaritan. Not even imaginable for a religious guy like this. So, by the way, when so Jesus, we're going to see he's going to go to Jerusalem. Uh, we see this in the Gospel of John. He's preaching publicly in the temple. He is infuriating the Jewish leadership, scribes, Sadducees, Pharisees, lawyers. He's making these claims that he came down from heaven. He's making these claims that he, God is his father. They accuse him of blasphemy. And he's retorting right back toe-to-toe -to -toe with them. So their ire goes up and their crescendo, they, they start insulting him. Oh, you're, your mother was never married. You're a bastard child, literally in, in John. They say that. We know who you are. We know where you came from. And they keep going back and forth. And then finally, they come up with their worst insult in John chapter 8, verse 48. You know what it is? And they say this publicly to Jesus. You are a demon-possessed Samaritan. Take that. That was the worst insult that you could possibly give as a Jew to another Jew. You, you couldn't top it. A demon-possessed Samaritan. Wow. Okay, so hopefully that just sets the background and relief so that you can understand the parable better. So now let's look at the story. Uh, this lawyer wishing to justify himself and not want to be condemned by the law and... Uh, get out of this somehow an accountability that Jesus has put upon him. He wants to justify himself, and so he dismisses the question, and he, and he asks the question, says, and who is my neighbor? Please define that if you will, because I don't want to love everybody. That's the point. I want to pick and choose who I love. I just want to love my buddies. I don't want to love everybody. I don't want to love, here's the irony, I don't want to love everybody it says to love in Leviticus 19. And yet he's a Bible, he's a religious Hebrew teacher of God's word, total hypocrite. Who is my neighbor? Jesus obliges him and actually, instead of directly answering his question, he, just, he gives him a story to answer his question. It's called a parable. Things about parables, uh, they are simple stories. They have universal elements that in them that everybody can relate to. A child can read this and get the gist of it. They're not to be interpreted allegorically. We don't turn every item in the parable into some mystical, secret, spiritual meaning. 
Usually there's only one simple meaning being communicated in a parable by Jesus. That's important to keep in mind. Only one. And 100% of the time, either Jesus, his apostles, or the Bible tells us what that point is. So we don't need to guess. We don't need to be like Origen, the early church father, who came up with 13 truths we need to know from this parable. And only he knows them. Oh, thank you, Origen. Really, that's allegorical interpretation. Don't do that. People do that all the time. Can't abuse the scripture. There's only one point in this story. And it's given by Jesus, and it's for one purpose. It is to expose this total hypocritical, so-called expert of the Mosaic Law, this lawyer. Who has an illegitimate question. Who thinks too highly of himself. I need to give him an answer that completely exposes him and it makes it clear, so clear, that even my disciples listening will understand the point. And that's exactly what he does. So, let's go through it. So, I'm, not, I'm going to address your question, and who is my neighbor so that I can love him so that I can inherit eternal life? So, this is answering the question, who is my neighbor, who am I obligated according to the law of God, to love And in relation to that, also, I might acquire or have eternal life for doing so. So there are two issues in that one specific answer or point that Jesus is making. So here's what he says. Um, Let me introduce the four characters of this story that will help you first. Kind of like Shakespeare used to do that. He has a play and he introduces everybody up front. In a sentence. Here's the main characters. So the leading actor is in verse 30. He's called a man. He has no name. Nine times in the Greek text, he's called him. So we'll just call this guy him, because that's his name. He's the lead actor, and he's called a man in verse 30. He is probably Jewish because he is coming down from Jerusalem. He was probably a pilgrim going to Jerusalem, and now he's leaving, and maybe he lived in Jericho or somewhere else. But he's a Jew. That's clear from the context. And he doesn't have a name, which is typical in parables. They don't get specific. So you got a man uh, who's a Jew. He's the main character. And then you have in verse 31 um, uh, a cameo appearance by a priest. A priest. He has no name, but it's clear. Jesus is telling this to Jews. The lawyer knew who the priests were. The priests were introduced in the days of Moses. The priests were responsible for the sacrifices, maintaining the tabernacle, taking care of the temple. Even in Jesus' day, the priests had authority. They spoke for God. They represented God. They spoke to God on behalf of the people. They were highly respected. They were highly feared. Uh, God created the office of priest. This is an Old Testament office. They were also had shepherdly duties. They were supposed to care for the people and love the people. They knew the law. They had it memorized. They knew the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament. They knew Leviticus 19. They knew the obligations of and what God expected. A priest. Of all people, in the time of tragedy, you would think that a religious person is going to come to your aid. That's what we expect. It hasn't changed. That was true then. A priest. Of course a priest is going to do something good and represent God the right way. Of all people that love God and love man, it's going to be a priest. That was a no-brainer for Jesus' audience. At least that's what they were supposed to do. So that's the priest. So you got a man named him, main character. you got priest and then another cameo appearance of a Levite in verse 32. What was a Levite? A Levite was an assistant to the priest. So the priest is hands-on, interceding on behalf of the people to God, doing the sacrifices. They're on the top echelon of priestly service before God and then on the bottom rung are the Levites and there were a lot of them and they were assistants to the priests uh, handling music and management of the tabernacle and then the temple and uh, the gate and the doorway and that's what they did but they were still they were in the religious elite though that was special if you were a Levite you had unique blood so again of all people that should know the law, that's the most important thing, would be a priest and a Levite. And willing to serve God, love God, and if you love God, then you love man. That's the point. And then the last character is verse 33, and a Samaritan, we'll see, he comes at the end, and I've already given you the background of a Samaritan, the most hated people of all among the Jews. You talk about racial animosity, ethnic animosity between two groups of people, Samaritans and Jews in Jesus' day. There was nothing stronger in terms of animosity. So let's read the story, starting at verse 30. Jesus replied to the lawyer and said, let me tell you a story to answer your question, who's my neighbor? 
So there's a man, a Jew, as I said, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Going down because in the land of Israel, Jerusalem is on a high point, elevated maybe 3,000 feet high. That's where it is, the, the mount there. And then when you leave Jerusalem, you're always going down immediately. And if you're going to Jericho, one of the next closest towns, that has the highest population of priests, by the way, next to Jerusalem, it was a 17-mile hike or walk or trot. So a man was going down, literally. He's going down, and there was a road, and it's well-known, and it's still around today, and you can go to Israel and visit and take the bus, and you, you fear for your life because of the turns and the crevices, and you look over the cliff, and whoa, that's scary, and all of these holes in the walls, and who's in there? A bandit, a robber, somebody hiding. 17 miles. It was like that 2,000 years ago. It's like that today. So a man was leaving Jerusalem, and he's going down to Jericho, 17 miles. He's by himself. That's dangerous. He's got his stuff with him. He's probably got his walking stick, his food for the day or maybe two days, firewood or whatever else he needs to uh, with him, his money bag and all that, as he's walking down this road to go where he needs to go. That was not uncommon. It was dangerous, but it was not uncommon. Uh, so the man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and then it says he fell among robbers all of a sudden. Fell among robbers, literally uh, some bandits surrounded him is the Greek word. Surra he was surrounded by robbers or bandits. These are not petty thieves. These are thugs. Strategic, pirate-like thugs who lived in the caves or on the road. And they would pounce. And that's what they did here. It literally says they surrounded him. You can just picture it. He's got five, six, seven, eight guys with their clubs surrounded by a pack of hyenas. Completely defenseless. What could he do? Fell among them, so he was a complete victim. And they, they, they pounced on him. They stripped him of everything they had. They repeatedly beat him, pummeled him, plagued him is the, the literal Greek word. Brutally so, to the point that they, they finally left him alone. They went away, leaving him half dead, leaving him for dead. In other words, he was going to die if not taken care of immediately. This man, what was his crime? He's just walking. So here he is, totally stripped, on the road. He's, in, he's bloodied up. Think Leviticus 19.16. Don't pass over, don't step over your fellow man who's in blood and neglect him. So there he is. He needs immediate attention. Oh, was somebody going to come? Verse 31, Jesus goes on. So after he gets beat up, beat up, he's left there stripped and naked, brutally beaten, almost dead, in critical condition. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. Oh, good. Whew, what a relief. Somebody's going to give him CPR and attention. That's probably what the audience was thinking when Jesus was... Oh, a priest. oh good. He's in good hands. The priest, he'll know what to do. That's in the Mosaic Law. Absolutely. Priests, they care about everybody. They're not partial. They're not biased. They're not prejudiced. They're not clicky. They love everybody. Keep going, Jesus. Tell us more. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when the priest saw the bloody man on the road, he passed by on the other side. He saw him. literally. He skips around and steps the other way. Anti on the beginning of the Greek word. It's emphatic. He purposely saw him. Oh, yucky. And Bypass, stepped over him out and around the way. Purposeful, complete, total, deliberate neglect of his fellow man. Cold as ice. Zero compassion. No appreciation for the sanctity of life whatsoever. Utter disregard for the Mosaic law that he knew. Complete disobedience overtly to his so-called God. That was the priest, the religious guy, the religious establishment. Wow, that's pretty bad. Passed by the other way, verse 32. Likewise, same thing, a Levite. Oh, okay, well, this Levite, they know what to do. They also have the Mosaic law down. They love everybody. They serve everybody. They're all over Israel. Certainly, he'll take care of it. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place where the man was laying there all bloodied up by himself, needing attention, he passed by as well on the other side, just completely neglected this man laying there in his blood. This is horrific. We can't even imagine. The, the audience is one deep gasp of their breath of another. Where is Jesus going with this? Immediately they probably begin to think, this story, this is ridiculous. This would never happen. This is not a true story. Jesus, you're exaggerating. Which Jesus often did to make a point. 
wow, somebody can help this guy? And then in verse 33, but, huge intentional, but, huge massive contrast. In contrast to the people of all people who should take care of this man, this fellow Jewish man, in light of God's word, the priest and the Levite didn't, but, get a hold of this, but a Samaritan who was on a journey. Wow. Who was on a journey, came up upon him. Purposeful. And when he saw him, all bloodied, beaten, stripped, get this. It doesn't say he did something. This is the, one of the keys to the passage, verse 33. It says he felt compassion for him. Literally, he hurt in his gut for this man. He doesn't know his name. He, never, he knows very little about him because he doesn't have any identity because he's stripped of his clothes, probably just in a sea of blood. And he is hurting in his gut for this man at the point of death. He had compassion on him. That, that word, very important, compassion on him to hurt in your gut. It's used 12 times in the New Testament every single time in reference to God or Jesus and his mercy he feels for people and sinners. It starts on the inside. It starts from the heart. It starts from what you think. It starts from an attitude. Go back to Leviticus 19 and see that of all these little phrases. Uh, Love your neighbors yourself because I am the Lord. From your heart, within the heart, because I am God. It's internal. The priest and the Levite, completely cold, didn't know God. He felt compassion, made in the image of God. And he came to the poor man, bandaged him up, his wounds, probably used his own materials that he had as he was traveling, pouring oil, and that's, that's lavish, exuberantly, the whole bottle, his oil, that was expensive. That could have been something he was going to sell in town for his family, providing, who knows what he's going to do with it, pouring the whole thing, it's like medicine. No thought, just pouring it as needed. And wine. Also precious. Very specific care. He put him on his own beast, whether it was a donkey or a horse, we don't know. So he's going to walk, and this man, he's going to be on the animal. And he brought him to an inn and took care of him. Brought him to an inn. That's just a shack on that 17-mile road. Some of those inns were pretty scary. But at least they had a place you could lay down. So he found an inn, takes him to the inn, after caring for him. And then most people, even if, I mean, most people won't even do this, right? You interrupt your day, you're, we're busy, we got stuff to do, somebody else will take care of him, the paramedics will probably help him, somebody else, some, another Samaritan, thank God for other Samaritans, so they can do it, so I don't have to, but anyway. So what he did was rare, caring for him the way that he did, then sacrificially giving of himself the way he's doing this. Not only that, get this, he immediately changes his schedule and decides he's going to care for this man all night long. I mean, how many of us are willing to do that? I mean, just think about it. Like last week when somebody needed help, how often are we willing to, there's a guy with a problem on the side of the road and we're willing to just stop everything and, or just at a moment's notice pull up everything and say, you know what, I'm going to give the day and a half to you. I got a busy schedule, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do my agenda, my thing, but you know what, I'm just going to do this all for you because I love you. We don't do that. That's what, this standard is up here. This is perfect love, lavish love. Unconditional love, supernatural love, extraordinary love. Yeah, he doesn't even know this guy's name, anything about him. But he, he hurt in his gut. Not only that, uh, he stayed all night long because it says in verse 35, on the next day. There it is. Stayed all night long. Still at the end. Uh, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him for me. I'll pay for everything, and whatever uh, more you spend, if you need to spend more money until I get back, then keep a running tab, and when I come back, I'll pay the running tab. Just pay whatever the cost is. And when I return, I will repay you. That is amazing. Two denarii, what's that? That's about uh, four to eight weeks in the inn. So that would be like us taking somebody, taking them over to Holiday Inn or a hotel, Motel 6, and you know what? I'm going to pay this guy's bill for the next... I'll be back in two months. And keep a running tab. Here's some, a down payment for the first two months. And meet all of his needs. When I come back, I'll pay the entire 
motel hotel bill. Wow. So Jesus is exaggerating. This is a perfect love, extraordinary love, extra, ex lavish love towards a, a total and complete stranger. Not only a stranger, uh, in the end it's a complete total enemy. Uh, so he goes on. Verse 36. And so then Jesus is done with this very short story. The beautiful simplicity of the story that Jesus just made up spontaneously. It's incredible. It is so poignant and cutting and so short and simple. And then Jesus, with the follow-up, here it comes, the, the question. So now he tells the story publicly, probably. It's directed at this lawyer, expert in the law. Jesus tells it. The, the crowd is aghast. This is scandalous, this story. And then Jesus uh, asked this question to the lawyer. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, catch this, or the Samaritan the Jews hate and despise? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor, fulfilling Leviticus 19 is required, to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Now, there's no way the lawyer can get out of this. He's got public witnesses, the story is simple. It's a no-brainer. What he should, you know, what his answer should have been is the Samaritan. He just couldn't get himself to say that. Those dirty words probably never rolled off his mouth in his life, for all we know. Nevertheless, he gives a correct answer that Jesus will accept instead of saying the Samaritan. Obviously, no. Uh, verse thirty-seven. He said, "The one who showed mercy." That was a safe answer. Still maintaining his dignity among his peers and the Pharisees. No, I never admitted that Samaritan was the good guy. I never said Samaritan. Who knows what their conversations were like. The one who showed mercy, obviously, toward the man on the road. And then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Go and do the same. That, that statement by Jesus, that's loaded. What does that mean? Go on and continue loving with the perfect love at a supernatural level that no one else does, that you don't even have the capacity to do, that you've probably never done in your life or even come close to doing in your life and never would. Keep doing that. He just said the same thing. Keep doing perfect love towards your neighbor, and you will have eternal life. And then that's it, and then we hear nothing more. So it ends rather abruptly. What is the point of the story? Well, we've gone over them, and I'll just circle back around just by way of summary. The point of the story was Jesus was defining what eternal life is. And who has it? Who has eternal life? It's people who know God personally, legitimately. They know God. And we saw from uh, John 17 last week that Jesus defined eternal life, first and foremost, as the quality of a relationship. Where Jesus prayed to the Father, Thank you, Father, that uh, and this is eternal life. Those who know you, God, and your son. So eternal life is knowing God through Jesus Christ. And you have eternal life. It's a qualitative reality and it's a quantitative reality. It lasts forever. You cannot lose eternal life. Once you become born again, you receive eternal life and it lasts forever. That qualitative, intimate, personal relationship you have with God through Jesus Christ. That is eternal life. It only comes one way and that is by believing in Jesus. And that was this lawyer's problem. He didn't believe in Jesus. He rejected Jesus and all of Jesus' claims. And he assigned all of Jesus' miracles to the work of the devil. So that was one of Jesus' main things. He's defining what eternal life is, who has it, and how you get it. And also don't misuse this parable like many do by saying, oh yeah, if I just do good things like the Good Samaritan, then I can please God and work my way to heaven. That is not what Jesus is saying. If you have eternal life and you know God, then you will do deeds like the Good Samaritan. You will love people with your gut if you're a Christian. He's not saying start loving people with your gut and you can become a Christian. You can earn your salvation. He's not saying that. The Samaritan's good works were evidence of his salvation, not the condition of his salvation. Very important. We do good works because we know God and Jesus. We don't do good works to come to know God and Jesus. As we like to say, we bark because we're a dog, not to become a dog. Real simple. And that's the difference between salvation by grace through faith apart from human works. It's a gift from God versus world religion which dominates. And that is you can earn your salvation by doing good works. Like we went uh, evangelism door to door yesterday and I ran into a, 
a, Hindu, uh, a Buddhist neighbor, and we had a good conversation for a good 20 minutes, and he told me that they believed in an up and a down. And I said, oh, like a heaven and hell? I said, yeah, exactly. And you, everybody either goes up or down. And I said, well, how do you know if is up good? Yep. Down's bad? Yep. How do you know if you're going to up or down? He said, well, it's based on the good things you do in this life. So you, you just try your hardest to do as many good things as you can, and hopefully you'll be going up. And I said, well, what do you mean hopefully? Can you know in this life? Nope. That is so common. Call it Buddhism or whatever you want. It's got many different names. And so we have the uniqueness of the gospel, and that is real simple. That uh, The good news is that Jesus Christ, who is eternal God, became a human being in the person of the Messiah, lived a perfect life for 33 years, was born for one purpose, and that was to die on the cross, crucified, to be punished by God the Father from heaven as a substitute for sinners, was buried, rose again from the dead, ascended back into heaven, and is calling sinners to repent and believe in him as the Savior. And any sinner who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I believe you are the God-man, you are the Messiah, you're the only Savior, the only way to heaven to know God. I can't save myself. I need you to save me. Your death to save me, to cover my sins with your blood. A free gift from you, God, I believe that. Save me. You pray that, and God will answer your prayer. In that moment, you'll be born again, adopted into his family, and you will have secured eternal life forever. That's the message of Christianity. That is the good news. Let's go to the Father and pray and thank him for that good news. Father, we do thank you for our time together and uh, be able to go through the Gospel of Luke to look at a familiar story and yet in the context of Luke and other passages you've given us in your word you can help clarify our thinking so we can understand it properly and the beauty of its simplicity that uh, eternal life is a gift from you you sovereignly distribute it you use human means in that process we are required to repent and believe and yet all of this salvation is a gift from you, and it's only possible through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our glorious Savior. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.